Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program President Michael Sorrell of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. Michael, good to have you back. Oh, it's wonderful to be back with you, and thank you again for the invitation. Great. So, Michael, you are the president of a school that started in 1872? Two. 1872. That's just a few years after the Civil War. Uh, it, it started at a time when, during Reconstruction, uh, the country was being reconstructed. That is to say, um, black people had been worshiping in white churches, generally in the balcony, right? And uh, there was a kind of uh, social accommodation where people sort of understood how they were going to be together. But after the Civil War, uh, white churches basically said, all right, if we can't if we can't own you, we're going to separate from you. If you're going to be equal, fine, but we're going to be separate. And so uh, here's a church, and all these churches began, right? And uh, we, we have the legacy of white churches and black churches that uh, is with us till today. Uh, but part of that was then, okay, well, what about higher education? And so the, uh, the birth of the historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, uh, began during that period. And there are how many of those schools now in America today about? Uh, 103. 103. And I think an awful lot of people might say, you know, well, it's been more than 100 years, for heaven's sake. Uh, don't we have a, a time when uh, there, it's, there, there's no longer uh, racial separation and uh, there's opportunity at uh, state universities and other private schools. Why perpetuate a historically black college or university? And I think there are a lot of good answers to that, but I think it would be great to hear yours. What, what would you say about that? Sure. Well, here, here's the thing that I would say. Um, there are Slavery existed for 400 years, and we haven't yet had a country where we've existed half as long without slavery. I mean, when you think about it, that's, that's pretty generous, actually, to be honest with you. I right. mean, when you when you think about it, we you know, 18 what 65 is the end of the war, and uh, we have a brief period of reconstruction, and then we move into a period of, of uh, separate but equal and uh, Jim Crow laws and uh, all the kinds of ways that one thing after another, we can outline all of this uh, that includes things like uh, voter suppression and poll taxes and, and, and uh, unequal schools uh, in the name of equality. And then uh, uh, we have the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And we just, it's just an extraordinary history of every time we think there's a chance for equality, there's another innovation of how to maintain this inequality, right? And, and look, let's be very, very clear. Um, we have not been a country that has been welcoming to the idea of equality, mm. right? At, at, at every step of the way, I mean, we don't want to invite anyone to the table, right? Women got to the table begrudgingly. 
Um, we can look at what's going on now with immigration. We can, we can look at all of this. I mean, the, the piece that I don't understand about our country is we were founded on these extraordinary set of principles and documents and we don't want to fully live up to them, right? Like, I mean, we just, we embrace them for the convenience of, of, of our preconceived notions. And what I've never been able to understand is why we claim an abundance and yet embrace scarcity, right? Because if you mm, look- Oh, preach, the there you go. There you go. You look at the way we behave is with a scarcity mentality. You right. can't sit at my table because if you sit at my table, I won't have as much. Right. And listen, I, and then the other piece of it is we wrap all of that around Christian principles, right? Or faith-based principles. And I have yet to find anywhere <laughs> in the Bible where it says you should be a jerk, right? You should be selfish. <laughs> You should be mean. Like, that's just not there, okay? It is not there. And so what, what is there, well, not in the Bible, but it is part of our principles, is this accommodation to evil, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have been willing to co-sign destructive, negative, hateful behavior in exchange for our water not being troubled. Ooh. And that, that to me, betrays everything that we could possibly be as a country. And so when you look at why we wound up needing historically black colleges in the first place, right? So slavery existed, okay? I mean, I know we try and write stuff out of history books, all right? <laughs> People were not workers, okay? They were not indentured servants they we were enslaved we were brought here it was horrible um and, and and we just have to own that right that is part of our collective experience in this country all right now it doesn't mean that you know the person i have lunch with today whose ancestors might have owned slaves doesn't mean that that person's an evil person okay but we all have some people in our family trees that did some stuff we would have preferred that they not do. None of our folks were angels, okay? You know, right. I saw this great saying once, that quote, said, all the saints and all the sinners are never on the same side forever, right? Ooh, yeah, and yeah. we just have, like, we have to make peace with these things. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the fact is that this happened. And because it happened, because slaves weren't allowed to read, they weren't allowed to write, they weren't allowed to own land, they weren't allowed to build wealth, they are freed. And then you have millions of people who are just basically said, all right, you're free. Good luck. Well, and 40 acres and a mule did not happen. That did not happen, right? There right, were no right. 40 acres, there were no mules. And by the way, those people who did get 40 acres, were sharecroppers and they were cheated out of their land. Okay, so it, nothing worked. Okay, nothing worked. And so you get these institutions that are given the impossible task of uplifting a race. Okay, uplifting a race without adequate funding, 
uplifting a race without adequate instruction, uplifting a race for people who couldn't afford to pay to go to school, right? I mean, it was a recipe for disaster. Yet and still, here we are, right? We are, a, Paul Quinn College is 148 years old. And at no point in our history have we sat on the banks of billions, right? right? That hasn't been our experience. But what we have always done is kept going. So when people talk about how is it possible that you stand up for these principles, that you live up to these values, because, you know, candidly, sometimes those values are all we've ever had, right? Mm -hmm. And so you hold on to the things which have sustained you. But I will tell you the miracle to me um, about this country, looking at where we are now, looking at where we've been, is I'm shocked that we ever succeeded in getting rid of slavery, right? Given the economic sacrifices that right. people had to make, mm. given, you know, you had to convince people to act against their economic self-interest, because if you use just, I mean, let's just use the current pandemic as an example, we're only asking people to make sacrifices for a couple of months so far. Right, right. I mean. Right. All right, so let's talk about this legacy and what it means for historically black colleges and universities. We have, uh, since the Civil War and before that, of course, we have the, um, the, the legacy of slavery. Today, uh, black Americans have about 10% of the net worth of white Americans. Yeah. And we can say, all right, well, that was then and this is now. You have every opportunity, go to it. But the, the conversation about reparations came up in a big way during the Democratic nomination process in the debates. And we heard, I think the whole nation heard for the first time, uh, a, a serious debate about what the whole nation owes yeah. to black Americans and possibly to its institutions like HBCUs. And so there were some proposals made. Uh, what is your take on all of that? Do you have a particular position to advocate for? Sure. So, so here's, here's what's funny. I actually taught a class this semester on reparations. Okay. Right? Um, and I, I teach an elite problem-solving class um, each semester. And we pick a different topic. And so the spring's topic was design a pathway for reparations to actually succeed and be paid in the current political climate. And, you know, was a little bit unfair to the students because the answer is you can't. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> right. Like you can't because if you somehow manage to get people to vote for it, everyone who voted for it will absolutely lose their jobs. Right. right? Like we've seen that kind of backlash. Right. Um, so here's, here's how I look at this. There really is no question that reparations are old. Right. I mean, like we can, we can dress it up. We can fight about it. We can do lots of things, but they're really, really, really at the end of the day, an egregious harm was done 
it was done because at the time that it existed, laws that were unfair, were truly immoral, were in place. It's part of the reason why also I, I don't have any fear of standing up to conventional status quo wisdom, because I know there are times where the, there's the tyranny of the majority. Right. right? right. Um, and so when you, when you look at this, this, this happened, okay? History, historically speaking, when things like this have happened to every other group, reparations in some way shape or form have been paid yeah mm -hmm. the only group that has not been paid to has been the folks who by the way arguably had the worst lot so 400 and, and let's also say the only group of people in an immigrant nation who who were brought here against their will did right. not come that's right. By their own choice. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. All right. Well, we could we could talk through that in great detail. I, I think um, that's a that's a whole episode for us probably. Uh, but if you know, for, from my point of view, you can just go to almost any aspect of the notion of repentance in the Bible, and it is not enough simply to say I'm sorry or to feel sorry. It is about making things right. So justice, Walter Brueggemann said, is figuring out what belongs to whom and giving it back. And, uh, you know, Zacchaeus was famous uh, for being the one who, when he was converted, so to speak, uh, he, he said, okay, I've cheated all these people. I'm going to pay back four times what I owe them, right? So, uh, you know, I think uh, there, there's a model for us, even in, in a biblical sense. Um, but going forward, you you have figured out uh, a, an economic model at Paul Quinn that we talked about in our last episode, it being an urban work college, the only one in America, uh, the only black uh, college that is a work college, uh, where all, all students are working and finding, making their way through and, uh, and, and graduating with very little debt. Uh, but you also made a really significant decision back in 2015. Uh, to do something that really changed, again, the ethos of the school, in that historically black colleges and universities have had a lot of school spirit across time with their athletic programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you had a big football field there, and you decided to tear it up and plant a garden, uh, yeah. to, uh, to cancel the football program and build an urban garden and that was an extraordinary decision. Let's talk about that somehow. Sure, sure. Um, so it, it actually is ironic. We terminated the football program in 2007. Okay. Um, All right. And then in 2010, we planted the farm. Oh, yeah. And, okay. and it was... Uh, <laughs> Man, time flies. Oh, it, it, it flies. And I tell people, we built a farm without a feasibility study. <laughs> without a real plan. We built the farm on the back of righteous rage. Okay? <laughs> I mean, okay. it should never have worked. The idea right. that a school with no agricultural program, no one <laughs> on staff that knew anything about farming. In fact, the person who was our original farm director, she got the job because I had mentored her since she was 16. 
she was the youngest staff member and I knew that she wouldn't tell me no. Right. So right. when I, called, I said, Hey, and she said, well, I don't know anything about farming. I just told her to Google it. Right. I mean, and that's how we wound up with the farm with no tractor really with no irrigation system. Right. And we're so incredibly thankful to you and the church because, you know, you all bought us our first tractor. Okay. <laughs> By the way, has made a world of difference. Okay, right. <laughs> Turns right. out, automation is your friend on the farm. Okay. Oh, that's right. Uh, but it is. Um, it you, again, it goes back to just a simple principle of, of what's right. Yeah. You know what, what's right. I mean, we could continue to play football, or we could address the needs of the community we serve. Well, let's say a little more about that because you are in what's known as a food desert, right? So your community uh, is um, without a um, large grocery store where people can go within several miles of, of where they live. And so they, they are left to uh, convenience stores and to um, the high sugar count and carb count of, of the kinds of foods that they can buy and then also the uh, increased price of those of those fast food goods and, and whatnot. So so here you are, you're, you're going to plant a garden, have a farm and produce uh, fresh greens and stuff, uh, vegetables for your community. Uh, what an incredible gift. Well, it's, um, you know, when we first decided to create the farm and I went to my board and I said, we're going to, we're going to turn the football field into a farm. And they all looked at me as if I was pretty much crazy. Uh, and I said to them, I was like, this farm is going to be the thing that saves our school. And one of my trustees said, are we going to make that much money farming? And I laughed. I said, no, you can't make that much money farming anything legal on this lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no. I said, but what this farm is going to do is it's going to show people who we really are. Right, right. right. It allows us to reframe the conversation. We're going to turn this around. Instead of being focused on us, we're going to say, we have something of value to contribute. Right. And it's made a world of difference for my students. It's made a world of difference for the community. It is a source of pride. Um, and, and it just, you know, again, it, it speaks to this deep-seated belief that we have that there's nothing better than to serve. Right. Well, so... For, for people like me who live uh, in North Dallas and who uh, have to make a, a decision every time we leave the house to go to a grocery store, uh, which one uh, am I going to pass to get to the next one uh, because they're competing with each other within you know, half a mile of each other. Um, the, the good news for people like us is that we can come home with a, a, a kind of nutrition plan uh, that uh, enables us to live fairly healthy lives. Uh, but COVID-19 has revealed a great deal of the health inequities uh, between the black and white communities of Dallas as well. Uh, that uh, hypertension that leads to heart disease and uh, that the, um, the, the diet that leads to diabetes is uh, making um, 
when, when an African-American essential worker in this town gets COVID, it is more likely that he or she will die from that than if a, a white person does. So it's a, it's a really, nutrition is a really important part of a healthy life and lifestyle. Yeah, it, it is. It's, I mean, listen, the, there is a price that you pay for being poor in America. Mm -hmm. You are robbed of the ability to do simple things simply. Mm -hmm. You are, and, and let me be very clear, people aren't poor because they're lazy, right? I mean, the, the way you have to work when you're poor <laughs> is, I mean, I look at my students and their families and they're willing to work two and three jobs to try and cobble together a living. So these are people who are lazy, but yet we blame them for their circumstances. Right. And I just, I, I don't, I don't know why we do that. I don't know why that makes us feel better about ourselves. Right. Right. Um, it doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us, good people. And so what COVID has done is it's peeled back the curtain, but frankly, I'm not sure that how much more peeling back the curtain needed to be peeled back. I mean, right. I people, right. It, but it made us pay attention, Michael, you know, well, some, I mean, you can be willfully ignorant, but uh, this is at least raised to the front page above the fold. The fact that we have this kind of inequality of access to health care, of health outcome inequality, of uh, vulnerability to the disease. All of these things are now right in front of us, and we have to be willfully ignorant not to pay attention to it. Right? Well, I mean, and so here's something else that I don't think people realize is how you, what also contributes to your health is your environment. Mm -hmm. right? So we are, <laughs> this blows my mind. We were, we did a study this spring in one of our classes about the air quality in the city. And it, it's, it's, it's just, it gets released. I actually think it gets released tomorrow, today or tomorrow. And it, it shows how effectively in the southern part of the city, the air quality is so poor and it's been legislated to be that way, right? Mm -hmm. So everything that the people in the Southern part of the city are experiencing, the law permits it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, if every second of your day or more often than not, you're breathing substandard air, mm -hmm. then you are hungry. And you say, well, I want to get something to eat. Well, you don't have Eatsies, right. okay? You don't have Central Market, so you mm -hmm. go to the convenience store. Money is tight, so you buy what you can afford. So maybe it's at the convenience store and the Burger King. Not that I'm not speaking disparagingly about Burger King. I understand. Using, so, you know, Burger King will have, you can get these two things for $5, right? Well, those two things aren't a salad, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, and so 
day after day, year after year, you are breathing poor air, you're eating substandard food, you're dealing with the stressors of everyday life. Stress. Two or three jobs. Two or three jobs. And so then when something like COVID comes along, Mm -hmm. which feeds on unhealthy bodies and systems anyway, ravages them, well, of course. It, and, and then you don't have access to appropriate health care. And then when you do go to the doctor, you might be told, just, you know, take an aspirin and go home. We're not really and you might not have insurance to begin with, more and than likely. probably do, don't so. have insurance. So all of this becomes the perfect storm that leads mm-hmm. to the destruction. Well, I, I want to wrap up our time together just um, using the conversation about the tractor as illustrative of the question of how we, as a larger community in Dallas, can be supportive. Uh, so th- the story of the farm hits uh, Sports Illustrated, right? And a young adult in our church in North Dallas reads this story and is captured by it. And tells his parents they have a family foundation and uh, they decide this is the coolest idea. It looks like they're basically using uh, manual labor to get this done. What if? And they had some resources to do that and we were able to connect uh, and and they donated a a significant tractor that was able to expand your farm uh, pretty quickly, right? So uh, that, that was one of the really great joys uh, that the day I got to go down with them and uh, meet you and see the tractor in, in, in the farm. Uh, so we're, we're proud to have been part of that effort, at least. Well, we are incredibly appreciative. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the real joy is for the students and staff that were down there trying to make this thing work without a tractor. Okay? I know, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they were so happy. I mean, one of them hugged me so hard that you know, <laughs> I, just, I just laughed and said, you know, I, like, I don't know what to do. Well, the, the fun thing for me is when, you know, when they call that, I, 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 knew, I knew you enough and knew how to get to you that when you hang around, for a long enough time and you meet people, it, you can make these connections and, and, and whatnot. So it was, it was fun for me to be able to be uh, just the intermediary go-between for you. But I, I, I really wanna make this a larger story and that is Paul Quinn College is a treasure for this city. And it is obviously a historically black college and uh, there's a great deal of pride about it being so and the leadership, the board, uh, being African-American, but surely you need friends everywhere and uh, supporters and and whatnot. There are people listening to this program uh, and and I'd just like to encourage them uh, to consider uh, that with their charitable dollars and their influence and and whatnot, that they consider you, uh, Paul Quinn, and uh, the, the not to direct how you're supposed to do what they want you to do with their money, but rather to find out what you're up to and join it. So, well, we we would welcome the opportunity. Um, I think when people take the time to come see what we're doing, they would be really, really impressed with what we're doing and the innovations that we've implemented. Um, and we would welcome an opportunity for them. You know, we can't give personal tours now, but we can give virtual tours. So that's right. 
call me. I'll get on FaceTime and I'll walk you around the campus and tell you the story. Well, you know, I just think a lot of people um, I hear from time to time, uh, they say, you know, okay, racism is what it is. What can I do? Uh, I'm going to change my heart, my attitude, and all that sort of thing. The fact of the matter is you don't have to scratch too deep before you can figure out a way that you can change systems, that you can concretely give back, that you can begin to be part of a solution that is not just about uh, changing the way you think and talk about other people, but actually uh, altering the way we live together and uh, what that future can be. Uh, you're doing that in so many ways, Michael. I thank you for uh, the great example and uh, for our relationship. And I look forward to many good times in the future. Well, I, I look forward to it. I am so, so just honored to be your friend and impressed with the work that you and the church that you all do on a daily basis. And I just think you all are one of the brightest lights we have in the city. So it's an honor to be your friend. Well, that's great. Well, uh, mutual admiration society then. Thanks for being on Good God again and have a great day. You too. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Good God. We're grateful that we get to be able to offer these conversations to you free of charge and especially now during this time of COVID-19 that is disturbing the peace for all of us we know that there are a lot of people and organizations that need your funding and so we're grateful to have the funding necessary to be able to present this to you without asking you to support us at this time please give generously to your faith communities and also to those nonprofits that are serving to encourage us during these days Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.